0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, You create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.
2: Yeah.
1: Hi there, and welcome to the History of the Great War. My name is Sam Hume, the host of a podcast on the history of the British Empire, Pax Britannica. I chose that name not because of an enormous love of Latin, but because of what it means, the British Peace, which supposedly began after the Battle of Waterloo and lasted for a century. Of course, this peace was built on military and financial domination, and wasn't really the least bit peaceful. It's only when compared to what came after that the 19th century looks remotely pleasant, because the British peace ended in 1914. The subject of this podcast, the Great War, shattered British hegemony and overturned the status quo, but this is old news to the long-time listeners of Wesley. If you want to hear more about how that status quo was built and that hegemony achieved, go have a listen to Pax Britannica. The narrative has begun in the reign of James Sixth and I with the colonisation of Ireland and America. From these relatively humble beginnings will rise the global empire, which you all know so well from the history of the Great War. If you're interested, Pax Britannica is available on all good podcasting apps. Now, on with your regularly scheduled podcast.
3: Hello everyone and welcome the History of the Great War episode 200. This week, I would like to thank Colton and Ronald for their donations on PayPal, and Melissa, John, Emery, Raymond, Cecil, Angus, and Andrew for supporting this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of these episodes, plus Patreon-only episodes, like the one that I released yesterday on the evolution of French military doctrine during the war. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to patreon.com historyofthegreatwar to check it out. After the war was over in 1918, countless people all over Europe probably could have said the words, quote, by 1918, all but one of my close friends were dead. Today we are going to focus on one of those people. This episode is something a bit different, and so I feel that I have to start off with a few disclaimers. This episode does not really fit into our overall narrative of the war, that will start up again next week. It also is very focused on one person, J.R.R. Tolkien, and this is done for one very good reason... It's what I want to do. At this point, after the First World War, Tolkien's works are probably in second place for the amount of time I have spent reading and thinking about them, and since this is a pretty special episode, 200, I thought it would be okay for me to do a project that I was very interested in, even if it's a bit outside the norm for the podcast. This episode is broken down into two sections. The first will chronicle Tolkien's path through the war. And if you are just here for First World War history, this should still be of interest to you, if only because it is one of the few times that we've really zoomed down to the individual level. During the war, Tolkien would serve in the Lancashire Fusiliers and would be present for the Battle of the Somme in 1916. The second half of this episode is where I will start talking about things like Kenya and Gondolin and Morgoth and Samwise Gamgee and the Dead Marshes as we dig into some of the ways that his experiences in the First World War would influence Tolkien's works later in life. While Tolkien was adamant that none of his stories were allegorical or inspired by real events, he would fully admit that his experiences both during and after the war affected his fictional works. During the Second World War, he would write to his son, who was serving in the Royal Air Force, that, quote, I sense, amongst all your pains, some merely physical, the desire to express your feeling about good and evil and fair and foul in some way, to rationalize it and prevent it from just festering. And this is what Tolkien saw his works as doing, in some way allowing him to talk about some of the feelings he had and rationalize it in some weird way. Tolkien was born on January third, 1892, in the Orange Free State in southern Africa, His family would eventually make their way back to the British Isles, where Tolkien would begin the path that would eventually lead to him attending Exeter College in Oxford. During this time, Tolkien's later obsession with languages and their evolution over time was in full effect. He would create and evolve several languages during this time, but he was also known as a very solid rugby player. Like many young men of his social standing, he was involved in the officer training corps, where he was a cadet. By 1914, he was also betrothed to Edith, who would later become his wife, and his studies were progressing nicely. Then the war started. After the war started, there was a call for more volunteers to fill out the ranks of the British Army. These efforts targeted the entire society, and middle-class young men experienced quite a bit of peer pressure to join up as officers. Tolkien would write later in his life that, quote, In those days, chaps joined up or were scorned publicly. It was a nasty nasty cleft to be in. Tolkien would elect to remain in school, hoping to earn his degree before joining up. He believed that this was his best option, since money was not something he had in abundance. One of his very good friends, Rob Gilson, would say that, quote, He did not join the army until later than the rest of us, as he finished his schools at Oxford first. It was quite necessary for him, as it was his main hope of earning his living, and I am glad to say that he got his first in English literature. He has always been so desperately poor. Even though Tolkien did not immediately join the army, his life was still affected by the fact that so many other of his peers did join up. A large percentage of the students from Exeter answered the call to the colors, and the number of new students dropped precipitously. This meant a mostly empty campus during 1915, an emptiness that Tolkien noted with regret. He did enroll in the officer training corps once again, choosing the path that set him up to joining the army at a later date, and this meant his weeks involved several hours of military drill and classroom instruction. Tolkien would complete his degree during 1915 spring semester, and during the summer of 1915 he was looking to join the army. On June 28th, he would receive an officer's commission for the duration of the war, and he would attempt to join one of his friends in the 19th Lancashire Fusiliers, but he would be unsuccessful, and would instead be assigned to the 13th Service Battalion of the Lancashire Fusiliers. For this posting, he would be given a commission as a second lieutenant, and on July 9th, he received a letter from the War Office making it official. His first task was to attend an officer training course in Bedford. At this course, he would be instructed on how to be an officer in the army, and also to lead other men in the drills and other activities that were required during training. Tolkien would complete the training course in August, and he would travel to Staffordshire to join the 13th Lancashires. This unit was set up as a training unit, which meant that it existed to train and prepare new soldiers that would then be drafted into the other battalions as replacements. Tolkien did not get on very well with his commanding officer, or really any of the higher-ranking officers he encountered during training. Tolkien's letters during this time, mostly to Edith, his future wife, are full of fun little stories and quotes. In what is maybe my favorite quote from one of his letters, and a sentiment that is probably shared by many other soldiers in the British army, Tolkien would write to Edith that, quote, Gentlemen are non-existent among the superiors. Even human beings are rare indeed. There is another quote about what war does to people, which I just have to share. Quote, War multiplies the stupidity by three and its power by itself. So one's precious days are ruled by 3x to the two when x equals normal human crassitude. One more quote from another letter from his time in training, this one discussing the types of training that were being done at various times of the year. Quote, The usual kind of morning standing about and freezing and then trotting to get warmer so as to freeze again. We ended up by an hour's bomb-throwing with dummies, lunch in a freezing afternoon. All the hot days of summers, we doubled about at full speed in perspiration, and now we stand in icy groups in the open, open talking about it. Near the start of 1916, Tolkien began to specialize in signaling. This allowed Tolkien to engage a bit with his love of languages and codes, and also made it more likely that he would survive the war, although I do not believe that survivability had much of an input in his decision. Once he transferred into the Signals unit, he, he had to attend several different training schools, and that, in his accounts, uh, show an increase in morale for him personally. He would spend most of the time from the start of 1916 until June 4th at various sc- uh, Signals training schools, and he would find time to officially marry Edith on March 22nd. In the first days of June, he was informed that he would be off to the front in 48 hours, before being given his last leave before being on his way. He would later say of this moment that, quote, "'Junior officers were being killed off, a dozen a minute. Parting from my wife, this was almost like a death.'" Tolkien would be posted to the 11th Lancashire Fusiliers, and when he arrived behind the front, he found a unit that had many different types of officers. Some of them were new to the war, just as he was. Some of them were even younger than Tolkien was, but then there were also fewer, a few officers that were much older. These men were veterans, not just of the First World War, but also some of Britain's previous conflicts. There were even a few Boer War veterans kicking around. Tolkien found that he had little in common with either group, and he would write to Edith lamenting this fact. During these last days before the Somme offensive, Tolkien and the other officers were constantly training either some of the younger officers or the men of their units. Tolkien's focus was on signaling, and what he found at the front did not at all match up with what he was told to expect during his training. Cables and telephone lines were a mess, not the nice, neat, and orderly setup that it was supposed to be in. To top it all off, he could rarely actually use these lines. There were problems with phone lines, with single return lines that were being used at the time, bleeding signals into the ground that could be listened to by the Germans. And this meant that most of the really important messages had to be sent in other ways, like runners or even carrier pigeons. Tolkien found that this made most of his training completely worthless. During the first days of July, Tolkien's unit was put on grave digging detail to handle all the casualties that were being caused by the fighting on the Somme. And then on June 5th, his unit would receive orders to move forward to reinforce the units that had taken Labassol. During this movement, Tolkien would stay behind to man the communications behind the front.
2: Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The Lancashires would move out to the front again on July 14th, where they would act as a reserve for the attack on Oliver. Tolkien would be involved this time, running communications closer to the front for the action. It was during this move to the front that Tolkien would first describe experiencing the true horror of the battlefield, noting particularly the stench of the dead bodies that were still laying on the battlefield, and he described it as particularly overwhelming. His unit reached the front and then remained in reserve for most of the morning of July 15th, and then orders arrived for the Lancashires to join in the second attack of the day. This attack did not go well, and was beaten back. And during all of these actions, Tolkien was trying to keep up some sort of communication link between the units at the front and the rear. And this meant mostly trying to use runners who were of dubious value, given their vulnerability, as they tried to approach the frontline units. With the attacks a failure, Tolkien's unit was back in reserve on the 27th, with Oliver's finally taken on that day. After the Oliver action, Tolkien was made the battalion signal officer, with the previous officer moving up to the brigade. This put Tolkien in command of the entire battalion's communication, and put him at the head of a team of NCOs and enlisted men who helped him set up the battalion's signal station. He would assume this new role on July 21st, and then the unit would be on its way to the front again on the 24th. They would take over part of the line that was to the north of the Somme battlefield, and here they were not tasked with launching any attacks, just simply holding the line, with most of the night spent working on the trenches. The biggest problem for Tolkien during this time was trying to maintain communications lines with Brigade Headquarters which were over a mile away. On August 5th, he would be pulled out of the line once again. The next combat that the unit would see on October 19th is when they would join the attack on the section of German fortifications known as the Regina Trench. Here, they would be successful, and Tolkien would be the one that sent the signal of that success to Brigade Headquarters. A few days later, they would once again be relieved as they would move back into reserve. This would prove to be Tolkien's last experience in combat, because on October 25th he would report sick with a temperature of 103 degrees Fahrenheit. The diagnosis would be trench fever, an affliction generally caused by lice that were always present for the men at the front, and there was only one way to really treat it, and that was simply rest. Hulkin would leave his unit on October 28th and be sent to an officer's hospital behind the front, eventually making his way back to England. Over the next several months, he would be in and out of the hospital, with the fever returning several times. On February 27th, the Medical Review Board found that he was well enough to be given a posting, although not one that was overseas and in combat. A short time later, he would be posted to the Humber garrison, which guarded the Yorkshire coast near the mouth of the river that shared its name. This would... He would be at this posting until the beginning of August, and he apparently found it to be very dull, which is probably pretty understandable, you know, guarding a coastline. Even though he was found fit for duty in June, in August his fever would return, and this began a series of medical problems that would once again see him in and out of the hospital for the next year. On April 10th, he would be declared fit to fight, and would be posted to the 13th Lancashire Fusiliers. But then on June 29th, he would again be in hospital due to gastritis, And this bit of sickness probably saved his life, because he would have been posted to the 11th Lancashire, the unit that was almost entirely destroyed by the Germans in Operation Georgette in uh, early 1918. In October, with the war seemingly near an end, Tolkien requested that he be allowed to transfer out of the military and into civilian work, and on October 13th, he was found to be unfit for military duty and was posted to a desk job. This would be his general role until he was demobilized after the end of the war, although he would be posted to Oxford after, signing the, after the signing of the armistice so that he could continue his education. One of the persistent stories, or myths, of Tolkien and his experiences during the war is that some of his early work was actually written in the trenches. Now, he would later say in life that this was completely false, uh, stating, quote, That's all spoof. You might scribble something on the back of an envelope and shove it in your back pocket, but that's all. You couldn't write. You'd be crouching down among flies and filth. Tolkien did later write that he may have done some writing in dugouts near the front, but probably nothing more than some brief outlines or just jotting down some ideas. He would find time to write during his time in hospital after 1916. And it would be during that time that the first drafts of some of his later works, and also a large amount of some of the languages that would play an important role in those later works, would be completed. Even if Tolkien did not write any of his stories in the trenches, the influence of Tolkien's time in the military and at the front can be seen in several aspects of his writing. I'm going to focus on three specific areas where I feel that influence is particularly strong the character of Samwise Gamgee, the Dead Marshes, and then the early drafts of the Fall of Gondolin. Hoken rarely called out specific influences within his life or life experiences for pieces of his stories, although he would often refer to older works and how they influenced his writings. One of the rare exceptions to this rule was the character of Samwise Gamgee, Sam was Frodo's companion in Lord of the Rings, and their relationship is very clearly modeled on the relationship between an officer and his Batman, a relationship that Tolkien would have seen firsthand during the war. Batmen were men, generally NCOs, that were assigned as orderlies to commissioned officers. During the First World War, the official term was soldier servant, but the more common term is Batman. They would take care of all of the various administrative items that the officer generally did not have time to do while worrying about leading his unit. And in many cases, this relationship had an extra dimension due to the very strict class divisions that were part of early 20th century British society. Batmen were generally of a lower social class than the officer, and this was also reflected in Lord of the Rings. Frodo is from the upper classes, as far as hobbits go, and Sam is originally his gardener, clearly of a lower class. Even with this master-servant relationship dynamic, Tolkien did not mean any slight against Samwise. He would say later that, quote, my Sam Gamgee is indeed a reflection of the English soldier, of the privates and batmen I knew in the 1914 war, and recognized as so far superior to myself. The influences on the character of Sam are very clear, and they seem similarly clear when looking at the location of the Dead Marshes. I've always personally considered the Dead Marshes to be clearly inspired by the First World War battlefields like the Somme, which Tolkien would have seen and experienced, but my research for this episode makes that connection seem a bit less clear-cut. The Dead Marshes are an area near an old battlefield, where over the years multiple large battles have occurred. Due to these battles and the armies that participated in them, the marshes are full of dead bodies, although in this case they are preserved by something supernatural. In the Two Towers, as Sam and Frodo are crossing the marshes, Sam would say, quote, "...there are dead things, dead faces in the water." To which Frodo replies, I've seen them too, in the pools when, when the candles were lit. They lie in all the pools, pale faces, deep, deep under the dark water. I saw them, grim faces and evil, and noble faces and sad, many faces proud and fair, the weeds in their silver hair, but all foul, all rotting, all dead. A fell light is in them, I know not who they are. It's very tempting to directly relate this area, an area full of dead and decaying bodies left behind by the battles of the past, and also bodies from both sides of the conflict, to Tolkien's wartime experience. In 1916, he would write that, quote, the dead marshes and the approaches to the Morinon owe something to northern France after the Battle of the Somme. However, in that same letter, he would say that, quote, they owe more to William Morris and his Huns and Romans, and in the House of the Wolflings, or the Roots of the Mountains. In general, the physical features of the Dead Marshes, the concept of an old battle leaving behind dead bodies that have been buried by time, is perhaps inspired by the war. But the actual details of the Dead Marshes, and many many of its fantastical elements which are so critical to its place in the story, seem to come out from more ancient stories. That will, of course, not prevent me from any time I talk about First World War battlefields to seeing a picture of the Dead Marshes from the Lord of the Rings movies in my head. We come now to The Fall of Gondolin. The Fall of Gondolin was a story that had its roots in one of those hospitals that Tolkien would spend so much of the war years in. It is a story of an attack on a large city, Gondolin, by an overwhelming enemy army. The draft of the story was created during the war years, and it would turn into his most extensive draft on the topic. This draft would include several aspects that would later be excised from the narrative, and these parts are often the ones that seem most clearly inspired by the war. One of these elements is the presence of dragons. Now, at this point in Tolkien's stories, dragons were much different than what the sort of modern conceptions of dragons is. Uh, They were not Game of Thrones or Harry Potter dragons or even Smaug from Tolkien's own work. Instead, they were more like large machines made out of various metals. One of them is made of iron, it carries soldiers within it, and they are created, quote, from, "...iron so cunningly linked that they might flow, around and above all obstacles before them. When these dragons are fired upon by the elves of Gondolin, quote, their hollow bellies clanged, yet it availed not, for they might not be broken, and the fires rolled off, rolled off them." The obvious parallel for these descriptions is that of a tank, but they seem a good deal more fantastical. However, now I'm going to read a report summarizing an account from a German soldier of the 211th Infantry Regiment who would be in the German trenches when the British used their tanks for the first time in 1916. Quote, There is a crocodile crawling into our lines. The poor wretch was off his head. He had seen a tank for the first time and had imagined this giant of a machine rearing and dipping down as it had come to be a monster. It presented a fantastical picture, this colossus in the dawn light. One moment, its front section would disappear into a crater and the rear section still protruding. The next, its yawning mouth would rear up out of the crater to roll slowly forward with terrifying assurance. When confronting the unknown... It is often the case that we reach into something that we do know, even if it is fantastical. While the Iron Dragons to tanks is a pretty easy parallel, there is also something to be said about the overall theme of the fighting in the story. There is a reason that the story, the story of a siege of a city, is called the Fall of Gondolin. Spoilers, it doesn't go well for the people inside the city. It is the story of failure and the hopelessness of war. All the feelings that Tolkien had about the war after the fighting was over. He would later say around the time of the release of Lord of the Rings that quote, "That I suppose was an actual conscious reaction from the war, from the stuff I was brought up on in the war to end all wars, that kind of stuff, which I didn't believe in at the time and I believe in less now." Tolkien's experiences during the war would stick with him for the rest of his life, and above and the above examples are just a few of the ways in which those experiences are seen in his writings. Then later, he would live through another war. His son, who he wrote that quote to at the beginning of this episode, would serve in the RAF, and Tolkien would write him in January 1945 about how he reflected on those years during the war almost 30 years later. Quote, I read eagerly all details of your life and the things you see and do and suffer. You will have no heart tug at losing that. But you'll remember the other things, even the storms and the dry felt and even the smells of the camp when you return to the other land. I can see clearly now in my mind's eye the old trenches and the squalid houses and the long roads of Artois, and I would visit them again if I could. Thank you for joining me today on this an episode 200. I hope you will join me next week as we begin our series of episodes on the aftermath of the First World War, starting with the Russian Civil War, which would be one of the deadliest conflicts in human history.